Isaiah 12. <clears throat> you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for, the, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among his peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done great gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the Lord. Hark the glad sound, the Savior comes, the Savior promised long. Let every heart prepare a throne and every voice a song. Christ comes, the prisoner to release in Satan's bondage held. The gates of brass before him burst, the iron fetters yield. Christ comes, the broken heart to bind, the bleeding soul to cure, and from the treasuries of grace to bless the humble poor. Our glad hosannas, Prince of Peace, thy welcome shall proclaim, and heaven's eternal arches ring with thy beloved name. Well, with congratulations to Brother Patrick and Sister Tabitha on their newest little one this morning, I also offer them my apologies that uh, I can't start with Lupe Fiasco, as he can. But uh, Philip Doddridge penned these words in the early 1700s as his reflection of Isaiah chapter 12. And he wrote something like 400 hymn texts, generally to accompany his sermons, as an English nonconformist, meaning pastor outside the Church of England in Northampton. And despite numerous offers from wealthy patrons to prepare him for and fund his ordination in and his advance in the Church of England, Doddridge was educated and lived out his ministry as a pariah, remaining in a small, poor church, who was frequently the focus of discrimination due to their nonconformity. He came by his nonconformity uh, honestly enough, as his grandfather was one of the 2,500 ministers ejected from England in 1662 as part of the great ejection for refusing to conform to the Book of Common Prayer. And as Doddridge had long endured the thorn in his side of tuberculosis, one of his wealthy patrons offered to finance a trip to Portugal in order to better his health, to which Doddridge replied, I can as well go to heaven from Lisbon as Northampton, and shortly after his arrival in Lisbon, he indeed died and passed into glory at the ripe old age of 49. Now, if anyone would like to become my patron and send me on a trip to Portugal, uh, I promise to make it a two-way trip insofar as it depends on me, although I'm not sure if that helps or hurts my cause. But what Doddridge reflected in his hymn is what I want you to see today in Isaiah chapter 12 of a joyous salvation a joyous salvation. The subtitle was Songs of Joyous Praise Upon Being Redeemed by Redemption in the Redeemer, but I think we can just stick with a joyous salvation. And I hope you'll see this chapter of Isaiah as two stanzas of praise bracketing this main idea, this main point of the text. Verses one and two, we'll see a stanza of individual praise. Then the focus of the entire chapter in verse three 
And finally, a stanza of corporate praise in verses four, five, and six. You might think of it like a scriptural oatmeal cream pie with a cream-filled delicious center surrounded and supported by two equally delightful cookies. So let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we have gathered here today to hear from you, to see what we should comprehend and believe and how we should have our affections tuned by the prophet Isaiah and what you gave him to proclaim in chapter 12. Would you do that for us today? Make us more like your son because of what we hear. Would your spirit work in the hearts of all these listeners to take all of the true things that I say, wipe away all of the silliness and falsehoods and any errors that I make, God, but establish the truth deep in their hearts that they might be made more like their savior even this morning. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, if you haven't opened up your Bible yet, please do so, and let's dive into the word of our God to hear what he has to say to us from Isaiah chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back, and nothing would make us more happy than to see that bookshelf out in the narthex area completely uh, wiped out, empty of books. That would be a great joy. And the first thing we should mention is that this song does not appear out of nowhere. It should not shock you to realize that Isaiah 12 is not the first chapter of Isaiah. There are actually 11 chapters before it. And we need to read Isaiah with some idea of what has led us to this point. There is a uh, meme that I find particularly funny in which there is an exasperated wife turning and looking at her husband saying, you haven't listened to a single word I've said, have you? And the husband, very confused, looks at her and says, what a weird way to start a conversation. So, I have been that husband. My wife is looking at me with an exasperated look right now. But let's not be that husband uh, with regards to Isaiah chapter 12. So let's see how we got here. In particular, we're going to focus on Isaiah chapters 6 through 11, which really set the stage for what we see in chapter 12. So in chapter 6, you may be familiar with this. King Uzziah has died after reigning for a very robust 52 years. And according to 2 Kings, Uzziah did what was right in the, side of, in the eyes of the Lord one of the very few positively viewed kings of Judah. But now he's dead. And the question left hanging before the reader is, what now? Who will reign? How will he reign? Who will lead us? How will we be secure? How will we have peace? Who will protect us from our enemies? And in the midst of this turmoil, Isaiah is caught up in a vision to the very throne room of Yahweh. And he sees a glorious one sitting on the throne. Ah, there's the one that still reigns. And this one atones for and he commissions Isaiah to go to the people. On our last Lord's Day gathering, Pastor Adam walked us through part of chapter 7. Uzziah's son, Ahaz, there's the who would reign. He was not one of the good kings of Judah. There's how he would reign. Even though the surrounding nations rise against Judah at this time and their wicked king Ahaz, the Lord says... No, this will not come to pass. And through Isaiah, he gives a sign, the sign of the virgin birth of Emmanuel, God with us. Though the surrounding nations were brought to tarry at this time by the Lord, and the hope of the future Savior was given, we turn the page to chapter 8, which warns of a yet-to-come Assyrian invasion. In chapters 9, 10, 11, they are full of messianic promises that you often hear at this time of year. The Prince of Peace will come. Listen to chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, 
there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The peace the people rightly desired would come in time. No enemy would stand in the way of this peacemaker who would save the people of God from every last enemy. And thus we arrive at chapter 12. Now, recall that in verses 1 and 2, we're hearing a stanza of individual praise. Let's go to verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. You might notice in the footnotes of your Bible that the you of verse 1 is a singular, singular you. And so we are hearing the song of the individual. And the day in view here, that day, is the day that the individual sees that redemption belongs to him. Just as Isaiah saw his unworthiness through, uh, before the thrice holy God in chapter 6, but was comforted in his distress as one of the seraphim brought that burning coal from the altar and atonement with it. And Isaiah responds with exuberant submission. Here I am, send me. So our subject here responds to Yahweh's comfort and turning away of wrath with thanksgiving. And the reason given in this stanza is experiencing that turning away of God's displeasure and the return of his pleasure. Even the people of God may feel the displeasure of Yahweh at times. And this could look like him hiding his face from us. It can look like him refusing to hear our petitions. It can look like him afflicting us or continuing his hand of affliction on us. It can look like letting a sense of wrath into our consciences. Why does he do this? Well, he might do this to humble us or to turn us away from sin. He might do it to strengthen us and fit us for a future endeavor or a season that we must endure or he might do this to speak tenderly to us. In Hosea chapter two, uh, God is explaining to Hosea what he's going to do, this vivid picture. And referring to his people, he tells Hosea, therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. But this sense of displeasure will not last forever. Though the Lord disciplines he loves, no punishment remains for them. Our Lord Christ drank the cup of God's wrath all the way to the dregs. There's a song that often gets in my head and gets stuck there, and it goes, I'm not going to sing it, but it goes, Weep no more, there's no more left for me. Weep no more, the wrath is on the tree. Isaiah tells us later in chapter 42 that a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And so, hang on, beloved, when you find yourself in such a situation and cling to the promises of God as you wait for his comfort until you can echo the words here in Isaiah 12.1. What does it look like when this comfort comes to you? Well, it might look like a renewed recognition of God's favor upon you. It might look like a rediscovery of the free and full forgiveness of sin. Sometimes we sing it, and doesn't this verse just, this line just hit home? Full atonement? Can it be? Ah. That's a rediscovery of the full and free forgiveness of sin. Sometimes God comfort, God's comfort might come to you as a new or fresh application of his precious promises. It's a grasping hold of his promises and realizing, this is for me. This is mine. God gave this to me. And I 
am rejoicing that this is true. The result of all this is a posture of thanksgiving, but not just a bare and dumb giving of thanks, but thanks given to the one to whom all thanks is due. Having just experienced a holiday named Thanksgiving, as uh, Pastor Jake is apt to remind us, it was on a Thursday this year. I expect you all experienced it as well. I am stupefied at how empty Thanksgiving is if you don't have a giver, someone to give thanks to. But Christianity tells a better story, as it always does, and as we see here in Isaiah chapter 12. So if you find yourself stuck in a rut of little or no thankfulness, spend some time meditating on your judgment, on the mercy of God, and you'll find your remedy. Such is the fundamental matter of our thankful praise and the heart of it. And one last thing to note from verse 1. I don't want you to fall into the trap of thinking that the God of the Old Testament is an angry God, if you take a literalistic, bare reading of verse 1, but that the God of the New Testament is a lot more loving. You know, that Jesus fellow had some nice things to say. We can trace this idea all the way back to the first century, to what is modern-day Turkey, to a man named Marcion. His ideas were bad then, heretical in fact, and they're still a bad idea 1,900 years later. Instead, we ought to confess something like, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of those that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, what we see here in verse 1 is an anthropopathism. You have the Greek word anthropos, meaning man or mankind, and pathos, meaning emotion. So we have an ascription of human emotion to the God who is unchangeable, immutable, and without passions. A classic help to explain this idea is Psalm 91.4, which tells us that he, God, will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Well, obviously from this verse we should not understand that our God has literal wings and feathers, but instead it does tell us something quite true about him, that his faithfulness is something in which we ought to find safety. And in a similar way in our text, we should understand the truth, that our natural state is enmity with God, deserving of his wrath, and we are in desperate need of a turning away of that just wrath, that righteous anger against sin. I've long appreciated how Calvin describes this kind of scriptural language. He writes this, For who is so devoid of intellect as not to understand that God, in so speaking, lisps with us as nurses are wont to do with little children? Such modes of expression, therefore, do not so much express what kind of a being God is, as accommodate the knowledge of him to our feebleness. In doing so, he must, of course, stoop far below his proper height. So every time you 
do baby talk with your kids or your nephews or your nieces or your grandkids. Remember God's kindness to stoop to our height. Let's look back at our text. Let's go to verse number two. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. There was a heavyweight champion boxer once whose name was Mike Tyson. Well, still is, I suppose. And he quipped once that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Well, as you read this verse, you might think your plan is just to read right on through, but the first word does something different to you. That word, behold, should stop you right in your tracks. So whatever you're doing, stop it and behold. That begs the question, what are we to behold? Well, we are to take wonder in the fact that we have an interest in God's salvation. It's not some nebulous idea or remote possibility, but it's a truth that is true for you. Could anything be personally more wonderful and awful in the old sense of being full of awe that God is my salvation? It's a recognition that not only have I recognized my need of him for salvation, but I found him to be just such a savior to me. An old dead guy put it this way, behold and wonder, God is my salvation. Not only my savior by whom I am saved, but my salvation in whom I am safe. He's gonna bring you all the way home. And this first simple clause of verse two suggests at least two more things to us. Firstly, that God will have all the glory for every aspect of salvation. Consider Romans chapter eight, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Broadly speaking, salvation includes the foreknowing and the predestining and the conforming and the justifying and the glorifying. And all these belong to God along with the glory due. This glorious golden chain of redemption adorns our Lord. And secondly, it excludes the possibility of any other salvation. As Peter proclaimed to the rulers in Jerusalem in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation properly belongs to Yahweh alone. He shares his glory with no others. Verse 2 goes on to tell us the result of this confession. It's an establishment of trust and a banishment of fear. What what fears are in view here? Perhaps foremost in view is the fear of being fully known and rejected. This is the fear that since God is indeed all-knowing, and thus he knows all our sins, past, present, and future, even the secret ones we keep to ourselves, that there's no way he can forgive us. But this verse calls us to trust that there is no danger of this God breaking our trust, of failing us, of neglecting to provide what we need. We ought to trust that he is a far greater savior than we are a sinner. And this verse also supports our hopes. If God is indeed our salvation, he will also be our strength and our song. We have our own work to do. You might call to mind Ephesians 2.10 here. But we do it not of our own strength, 
but with God himself, this immense, immutable, and eternal, and almighty one as our strength. His grace is sufficient for us. We have our enemies to fight. Paul refers to them as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we have our troubles to endure, but we fight with confidence and not fear that our griefs will not go unanswered, that our tears will not go unnoticed, and that our needs will not go unmet. No, instead we endure all these things with a song in our hearts and on our lips. We trust that the one who gave us his name, I am who I am. Because he does not and cannot change. His promises are sure, and thus our hopes in him can never be in vain. You may notice that these first two verses are a distinct echo of the song of Moses recorded in Exodus 15, which Moses and the people sang upon being delivered through the Red Sea and saved from the pursuit of Pharaoh's army. It reads like this. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, what we should recognize from this continued pattern of redemption is that even though the people of God required rescue time and time and time and time again, these all existed to point to a fuller and future rescue. And now in verse 3, we come to the main point of our text this morning. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Beloved, the wells of salvation belong to our God. And it should be no surprise that this is a beautifully Trinitarian work. The Father is referred to as the fountain of living water. Take Jeremiah 2.13, for example. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Salvation springs from him. The Spirit is often at work on, in, or around water in Scripture, as in Genesis 1-2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And in Exodus 15, in which we just referenced, where the waters were parted and the people walked through on dry land. And John, and thereby our Lord Jesus, refers to the Spirit as the well of living water in John chapter 4, when he said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Salvation is applied by him. Our forefather John Gill explains that the Spirit convinces men of their need of it that brings near this salvation to them and shows them their interest in it and bears witness to it and is the earnest and pledge of it and he is the author of all that grace which makes them meet for it and from whom are all the supplies of it, by the way. And the Son, certainly, likewise, is in view here. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, speaks of the bridegroom as a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Salvation is earned by him. So we find the wells of salvation in our triune God. But more practically, I humbly offer to you the ordinary means of grace. These places where he has promised to be and to meet with us, to his word, to prayer, just simply having his ear, and to his ordinances. 
His ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism, are tangible activities that reveal his salvation to us. They show us what he has done to turn away his anger from us and instead to be our strength and song and salvation. And they remind us over and over and over and over again of his promises and they urge us to take them for ourselves. It is our duty to bring ourselves to these wellsprings and so I beg you this morning not to neglect these ordinary means of grace. The times in my life I've felt the most spiritually dry, either the cause of or certainly one of the symptoms of such a time has been my neglect of the means of grace. Don't let that be true of you. Faith draws on these wells and receives much to the point of an overflowing cup. Finally, in verse 3, notice that we draw this water with joy. There's a great deal of pleasure and satisfaction drawn. This is true of God's people throughout redemptive history. Consider Deuteronomy 26, 11, And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. And also Acts 2, 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. And it must be true of God's people today as well. Well, as we turn our attention to verses 4, 5, and 6, please notice that the you in view is now plural. There is an inviting and encouraging one another to lift up a song of praise. Just as sanctification is a group project, so is thanksgiving. And you, this is verse 4, will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Most immediately in view here for the first audience is the deliverance they looked for from the Assyrians, which, as we mentioned, Adam preached about last week. And like we've already seen from Exodus 15, the giving of thanks was true of the Israelites upon their deliverance from Pharaoh. And this pattern repeats all throughout Scripture and carries on even today. If it was good for Israel to give thanks for passing through the Red Sea, if it was good for Israel to give thanks for the deliverance from Sennacherib and the Assyrians, how much more are we to be giving thanks for our salvation from all our sins and misery? Children, remind your parents of the catechism questions you've been learning and the answers that you've been learning in Sunday school. Your parents, too, ought to be giving thanks to God for such deliverance from all their sins and misery. Parents, neighbors, other people sitting in their row, ask those children what they're learning and practice it with them throughout the week. In case you need a reference, it's Heidelberg Catechism or an Orthodox Catechism if you'd like to baptize it. Question and answers one and two. And if our children learn nothing else from their entire Sunday school career, if they master these two questions and answers, they will be well prepared for a robust life of faith. But even more yet, how much more will we give thanks in that great day of our Lord when our salvation is brought to its fullest completion? When we no longer have to look around and see the wicked prospering, when we no longer have to endure a single thorn north thistle from the fall, when we no longer have reason to mourn as even death is put fully and finally under our Lord's feet, when we no longer have to lament the presence of indwelling sin. 
when the bridegroom, no, when the bride no longer has to wait to see her bridegroom. Well, verse four continues on and gives us explicit ways to give thanks to the Lord. We call upon his name. This looks like at least two things, leaning on him in prayer and ascribing to him the glory due his name. We make known his deeds among the peoples. So after speaking to God, we speak to the people, all with an end goal of exalting his name. Go to verse five with me. Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. We get together and we sing in part because of scriptural commands just like this one. And as we mentioned, verses four, five, and six, singing is communal. And I have a confession to make to you at this time. I've been watching something that I'm not terribly proud of. Uh, It's called soccer. But a thing that I am amazed with is that you can get 10,000 or 30,000 or 60,000 fans all chanting or singing these same complicated songs for many players on different teams. They don't have any training. They don't have practices where they get together and work on different parts. They don't have to convince anyone to join the choir. No, the attitude and words are simply caught like an infectious disease. Perhaps we could call it a pandemic. Thank you. Well, if soccer hooligans can do it, how much more should the people of God? And hooligans are welcome here, by the way, as this fellowship is not a museum for saints, but it is a hospital for sinners. Now notice here that this singing is not simple, bare singing, but it is done to the Lord. There's an audience. We lift our voices to his ears as an offering of praise. And this singing is not without reason. No, his glorious works serve as the foundation. I commend to you a one-volume systematic theology book from an old dead Dutch guy, even though the Dutch did just eliminate our men's soccer team. His name was Herman Bavink, and the English title is translated, The Wonderful Works of God. It's just delightful, and it's surprisingly readable for an old Dutch systematic theology, and I am convinced it will lead you to doxology to praise. The title is just perfect. Wonderful works of God. The final thing I want you to recognize in this verse is the extent of our praise. It goes to all the earth. Later in Isaiah, we read that the Lord's chosen servant will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This servant later told his disciples that all authority on heaven and earth belonged to him and so they should go and make disciples of all nations. Part of making these disciples must include teaching them to sing. So, brothers and sisters, If the Lord has done gloriously, and he has, sing. Sing from your heart, from your heart, to the best of your ability, whatever that may be. Sing in spirit and in truth, and the Lord will certainly receive it in his kindness. And let's finish up by looking at verse 6. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One, of Israel. Just notice briefly from the last phrase that the Holy One is of 
Israel. He belonged to Israel as their God. By covenant, he committed to be their God and that they would be his people. And now, finally, we come to the entire reason that I selected this text for an Advent sermon series on the Incarnation. Not only is he the Holy One of Israel as God, but he is also from Israel as a man. The Old Covenant existed and formed the nation of Israel in order to bring forth this man, the Messiah. And in the fullness of time, he came. Remaining what he was, fully and truly God, he assumed that which he was not, fully and truly man. He was incarnated. He was enfleshed. Now, God's presence in the midst of man is quite a trouble to his enemies, as it was to the Assyrians who were turned away from Jerusalem when the angel of the Lord slew 185,000 in their camp. But to his people, God's presence is what they had been waiting for since Genesis 3.15. I have to tell you that Exodus 34.7 was a rock in my shoe for a long time. What's happening here is Moses has come down the mountain with the two tables of the law. He sees the people worshiping a golden calf. He is properly angry and he breaks the stone tables. So he goes back up the mountain to make two new stone tables. And Yahweh, in his goodness, proclaims his own name to Moses in great detail, including that he will by no means clear the guilty. You might recall, you've heard that once already this morning. And for a long time, that phrase really bothered me because I got a problem. I know something of my own guilt and I got to do something with it. I got to get rid of it. And here I have this statement that God will by no means clear the guilty. But one day, God helped me to understand that the story of redemption is even better than I had imagined. The eternal word, the Father's only begotten Son, took on flesh. He walked on this earth, and he lived the perfect life that I should have lived, and he died in my place, a death I should have died. All of this not to simply clear my guilt as if it could just be swept under a rug. No, the righteousness of God had to be satisfied. And so this Holy One came in the midst of Israel, not to clear the guilty, but even better, to make them righteous. And in so doing, he takes our guilt on himself, becoming guilty in our place. What a marvelous exchange. My guilt to him and his righteousness to me. Some really smart Christians got together to punch some heretics in the face in AD 325, both figuratively and actually literally, and they wrote these words. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father, through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. 
his kingdom will never end. This Holy One of Israel who took on a physical nature left us with a physical ordinance. We call it his supper. So when we take that bread in our hands and that wine in our hands, we remember that for us and for our salvation, he stretched out his hands, hands just like ours. And we put that bread and wine in our mouth and we partake of it. We remember that for us and for our salvation, he became incarnate so that with joy, we would draw water from the wells of his salvation. If this salvation is your strength in your song this morning, then we invite you to participate in this Lord's Supper with us. If you are a member in good standing of a local church, doesn't have to be this church, then we invite you to his table. During the next song, we'll form two lines. You can come down, collect the elements, hold on to them, we'll take them together after the song. If this salvation that you've heard about this morning is not your strength or your song, then we warn you and we beg you not to partake of this meal and thereby drink and eat judgment on your head. But instead, any of the elders would be delighted to talk to you afterwards and help you understand your stance before a holy God. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are overjoyed with your grace towards us. When faced with our own humble positions, our enmity stares at us in the face. We recognize our problem, our unholiness and inability to stand before a righteous God. The same sense that Isaiah had when he was caught up into your throne room and he saw your son sitting on the throne in all of his glory. And Isaiah realized he could not, he could not be, he could not even exist in the presence of such a one. But you didn't leave him in that state, estate, God. You took care of him by providing exactly what he needed and atonement. And you did the same for us, that in our sin and misery, you've not left us without hope, but your son took on flesh to ransom us from all our sins and misery. May we give you thanks more and more as we recall his work on our behalf, that we would be made more like him, more fit for heaven, more fit and capable and willing to live in eternity in his holy presence. Amen.